poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest is mediocre poker coach Carlos Welch, who is back for a round two. Carlos and I's conversation was recorded right before the pandemic went nuclear, and I had been wondering to myself how a man who lives out of his car would fare in these strange times. I mean, I can't even drive my kids one hour away without catastrophe striking, one of them needing to go to the bathroom. So how do you find a place that will let you inside to use the bathroom on a regular basis? How do you shower if your gym is shut down? Also, let's be honest, I really just wanted an excuse to talk to Carlos again because he's such an amazing human being, which if you have not yet been convinced, you will experience for yourself in just a few moments. In today's episode, you'll learn how trusting your teacher relates directly to their impact, why Mike Caro may be the most underappreciated all-time poker coaches, why Carlos doesn't like interacting with strangers, and much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the nomad and anything but mediocre poker coach, Carlos Welch. Carlos, my man, how are we doing, sir? I'm doing good, Brad. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm enjoying summer. It's a little hot, but um, what have you been up to since the last time we talked? I think the last time we talked was pre-COVID, which is basically like a lifetime ago. Yeah, it was like right at the beginning when things kind of got bad around the middle of um, March. And like when we noticed that things were going to get bad, maybe they got worse than we expected. But um, yeah, at the time I was just doing a whole bunch of playing poker online. Um, So when we lost live poker, that wasn't a big deal for me because I didn't play much live anyway. But I do hate the fact that we didn't have a World Series this year. But because of COVID, a lot of the online, a lot of the live players started to move online and a lot of them didn't know how to play online poker. So for those that don't know, I coach online poker. So my coaching um, business went way up and it's now to the point where I'm coaching way more than I was playing back in March. So yeah, since that time, I've been doing probably 80% coaching and maybe 20% playing. Why do you think player live players struggled to the transition online? A lot of them, honestly, part of their edge comes from being able to look at the guy or um, the ability to like focus in on one table at a time. So when you add the multi-table element and you remove the human element, um, I think a lot of players kind of had to find a different edge. For sure. And just, we talked about it last time that live tournaments are just by nature, much softer 
than online tournaments, especially yeah. when you start playing like a 500 or a thousand live tournaments are still incredibly soft, but the online version of a 500 or 1000 is very, very different. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of those guys, if they're used to, you know, if they're playing for a living and they're used to playing, you know, a thousand dollar tournament, but they don't have any online experience. Like you said, they can't just jump into an online uh, online thousand dollar tournament, but they also can't jump into 10 109s either. Right. Because it's a different skill set. So that's what they need help with. Yeah. Need help playing smaller stakes and just getting more volume to, to make up uh, for playing the smaller stakes. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Has your, has your coaching rate gone up since you, you've had this influx of business? You know what, man? It should. <laughs> but Come it on, hasn't. man. My, my rate, I started coaching in 2017. My yeah. rate is still the same as it was in 2017. We got we to gotta reevaluate. We got to re, I've, we got so much supplied. We got so much demand <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably like 95%, you know, um, happy customers. So it's probably about time for my rate to come up. I'm actually working on something, um, over the next couple of months, um, that when that's ready is probably going to increase the, um, demand even more. And I'm probably going to, um, Go ahead and increase the rate because of that. Are we being cryptic on purpose? <laughs> um, it's something I'm working on with a partner that I don't know if I should be talking about yet. But I will. I will say it's a um, a training product. I'll just say that. This is what else could it be? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Other than right. a training product <laughs> that increases demand. Basically, somebody who has some clout in the poker community. You're making a training product with them is the assumption. Yes. Perfect. Awesome, man. Uh, we, maybe we should have held off on having this round two <laughs> until that thing got released and like, you know, we could actually call it by name what it is. Right. COVID, you famously are known for living out of your car and traveling yes. around the country. COVID... My experience, I haven't traveled much at all. I mean, you can see what I look like right now. The audience that's listening to this cannot, but I'm basically pale as a ghost. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> yeah, I'm, you can almost see through me. I haven't been outside. The only interaction I get with human beings is through coaching sessions and these podcast interviews. And I took my kids a couple of, about an hour away from me. And I realized that when we got there, I had to use the bathroom mm -hmm. and I had no chance. Like no, no place was like letting me in to use the bathroom. Right. Oh wow! Yeah. And I, I thought about you and just <laughs> traveling and living like that. And like, what the hell, how are you surviving in yeah. this pandemic? You know what, man? So this is, this is funny. I don't know how I got wind of this, like in February. I kind of understood what COVID was a lot sooner than a, a lot of my peers. At that time, I was in um, San Diego hanging out with my ex. But once I realized that, you know, the pandemic was right around the corner, I did a little research. And one of the biggest things I learned during that research was pandemics are 
really bad when you're in populated areas. So I told my ex, you know, San Diego's not going to work for me. So I basically got in my car and I drove to um, Laughlin, which is just outside of um, Vegas, like two hours um, south of Vegas. And when we last talked, that's where I was. And so I had already saw the writing on the wall where uh, when I was in my car, I was using the restroom at casinos a lot. But then the casino shut down. I was taking showers at Planet Fitness, but then Planet Fitness shut down. And I just wanted to like be in a sparsely populated area like Laughlin. So I drove there and um, I got a hotel room um, just so that, you know, I would have facilities <laughs> uh, since I couldn't um, uh, bomb off the public facilities anymore. Right. And that's where I was the last time we talked. Now, since then, I actually had to come back to San Diego because my ex had to have um, spinal fusion surgery. And she needed, you know, help um, around her place. So I came back to help her. And I've been staying in her apartment pretty much um, since June. Yeah. So like the end of June, um, I've been here. So I haven't been in the car um, full time since like uh, before February. So there's no like wandering out into the woods and wiping your butt with the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You know, I, I do miss I do miss the car though sometimes. Like I I'm weird, man. I'm weird in that sometimes I'd rather sleep in the car than not. So I do miss it a little bit and I'm actually looking forward to getting back to it as soon as possible. But yeah, you is everything's kind of like up in the air right now because some casinos and gyms reopened for a short time and now they've closed back again. So the cool thing is that I'm flexible. So I can move in and out of different living situations as the conditions require. It's funny. Some people have been displaced and you've been placed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, like I've been placed and it's not a fun thing for me. I'm like, oh, I wish I was still homeless. Like, that's how I feel sometimes. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I love I love traveling. I love the adventure, being in new places, seeing different sights, hearing different sounds, interacting with just different people. It's always a fun thing for me, and I assume it's probably one of the draws for you traveling all the time, especially. Yeah. Not the interacting with people part (laughs) that I I don't like. Um, But I can tell you, like, I'm not really a religious person, but the times where I do start to feel somewhat spiritual is when I'm out in nature. And it could be as simple as like sleeping in a car and having the sun wake me up like just looking out over the mountains and like seeing the sun peek over the mountains, like something like that. It's like, I miss waking up like that. You don't get that when you're waking up in an apartment. So that I miss, I do miss the traveling and I do miss seeing friends. Um, but I'm not that, um, excited about interacting with the general public. (laughs) What's wrong with the general public, man? What's, what's the beef? People are weird, man. People are weird. And I'm weird. So if I'm weird and I think 
others are weird, then they must really be weird. Tell me a story about a weird person. I'd love to hear a weird person story. A story about a weird person. So a lot of it was in Vegas. Uh, when I first went to Vegas, so I'm originally from Atlanta, and um, the the random people in Vegas are just like different <laughs> um, than random people any other place I've seen. So when I when I originally went to Vegas, which was um, 2011, I was taking public transit a lot, so I would be on a bus. Like I can remember the story once where I just went and played poker at Binion's and took the bus back. And I'm pretty happy to be in Vegas. It's a sunny day. I'm, I got my music on and my my poker shades. There were, blue sharks were like, you know, the thing at the time. And I'm just enjoying life. And I'm sitting on the bus and there's this kid staring at me who's probably, I don't know, Maybe he was like early 20s at the time. I was probably like, what year was this? <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I was like 30, somewhere in that ballpark. So I'm not much older. And um, he kind of like did his finger, like, um, like come hither. Like, 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 you know, he was, and so I'm like, yeah, what's up? And we're like at a stop sign. I mean, at a red light and there's a McDonald's besides the, the bus. And it sounds like he says, my picture, my picture. And I'm like, what? And I'm like looking at the McDonald's, like your picture's in the McDonald's? And he was like, <laughs> he was like, no, come here. Like, and then I lean in close to, to hear what he said. And he says, my patience is wearing thin. And I'm thinking like, okay. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that means, but whatever. So I just kind of like went back to my seat and this dude was staring daggers at me like just the most murderous stare of all time. And I was like, really, um, <laughs> I don't even know the right word for this emotion. I was like disappointed. I was disappointed because I'm thinking like, man, I just got to Vegas. I'm going to have to go to jail for choking this kid out. <laughs> and it's like, man, just why, man? Why? Leave me alone. And he stared at me and then he just takes his fist and like punches the side. Like he's sitting in a seat on the bus and he's like punches the wall of the bus really hard. And now I'm thinking like, okay, if this dude comes at me, I'm going to have to hurt him. And we drive for maybe like another block. Apparently the bus driver knows this guy. Like maybe he's like a random uh, local that everybody knows. So the bus driver like called ahead for the police to get him at the next bus stop. We got to the next bus stop. He got off. He ran. Police chased him and took him wherever they took him. So he's a mentally it, disturbed human, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of people like that in Vegas. One time I was sitting at a bus stop and a lady walked past with a cup of water. And she took maybe five steps past me. She stopped like she forgot her manners. She turned around. And she like offered me some of her water. And I was like, no, thank you. And she says, it's only water. And I'm thinking like, ma'am, no, thank you. And then she said, I have nice legs except for these spider veins. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, man, get me out of this town, please. <laughs> get me out of this town. It feels like I have like the most weird interaction with random people of anybody I know. 
I have not had those. I haven't spent a lot of time in Vegas, to be fair. On the public transit. That part is important. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's that's probably a pretty big piece of the puzzle. I, I do remember being staying at the Cosmo. My wife and I were getting married, and our whole family was there. I, we walked past some people outside on one of those little bridges, and I remember she looked like a, a, a gypsy just sitting there, like in this July heat. So it was just burning alive. She had a cat, and the cat was like it it had to be drugged. I mean, it was like just barely moving. It was very odd. It was a very odd thing to see just like out there. Right. But, um, why do you think Vegas draws in? It's more than its fair share of the weirdos. I had, if I had to guess, and this is a complete guess, like, are these people who like came to Vegas thinking they were going to hit it big and it didn't work out for them? Like, maybe these are, like, you know, poker players from the 70s. I don't know, man. It's like that – it seems like if you were going to be homeless, a city that has 115-degree heat in the summer would be my last choice. And it's cold at night, too. Yeah. It's not, like, pleasant at night either. Right, right. So – I don't know what's up with Vegas, but it does attract uh, a different type of local than most places I've been. Yeah, I mean, it, it could just be that the town chews them up and spits them out, and yeah. that's where they land. Um, yeah. To be honest, like, uh, not that I put a ton of thought into being homeless, but if I ever were homeless, my ideal location is Hawaii. Like, yeah. there's actually a fair amount of homeless people in Hawaii. Uh, the one time that I went there was that was something that I noticed. And I was like, these people, they at least got something figured out (laughs) because this is, this is pretty good climate. Or San Diego, San Diego. That's not a bad spot either. Yeah. But the places where I've seen tons of people are like the worst places like Vegas. And then also Portland where it rains literally every day. Yeah. Yeah. That is like, yeah, there's a lot of people in, in tough situations and, and, and it strikes, it seems like a lot of them um, have mental issues that kind of makes it hard for them to um, get out of those situations. So, yeah, it's rough, man. It is, man. I, I, I remember a story, this kid, I was getting gas and he kind of approached me and it was like a, you know, like a panhandling type situation. Uh-huh. And... I was just immediately like, he was around my age and he's like, no, no. He's like, Hey man, I'm just, I'm really hungry. And my girlfriend is cold. Like it was cold. It was near, near winter time. He's like, will you just buy a burrito and a cup of coffee for me and my girlfriend? And like, man, it hurt. Like I I just, I felt it, you know, I just, it's like, there's a story here. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know why there's no support system but like it made me feel just so sad like i I bought him a burrito and you know the coffee but it was just like it it could be me i think it could be lots of people just a product of a life that somehow goes awry at some point and you just don't have any sort of family or fallback plan and you just end up on the street right and that and that's another like i got a dream, kind of like a, a half dream here, where I, I I would love for my 
living situation to become more popular is not the right word considered like my baseline is pretty good and there's a lot of people who probably were somewhat well off at some point in their lives and maybe chasing something that was kind of hard to obtain resulted in them losing everything like like some people that are homeless used to have homes and cars but maybe they lost the car trying to keep the home and then when they lost the home they were left with the street like lose the house first and then keep the car so at least you have shelter and but but it's not something that is considered normal like I'm the weirdo to a lot of people but with okay covid is a good example um outside of poker um part of my other employment is I'm a substitute teacher, but I couldn't go to work because the schools shut down. And when the schools reopen, they may just do virtual learning. So I may not get to work until like next fall, like 2021. And I haven't worked since last fall. So I can go multiple years without working because I don't have to pay rent to sleep in my car. All I need is a little bit of money for gas and food. And that's a comfortable baseline, much more comfortable than living on the street in Vegas. So I wish one, I hope one day that more people consider this lifestyle as an option. It's weird to me that people find it weird. Like it's a conscious choice that you've made. And clearly you have a happy, pleasant existence. I mean, comparatively to everyone, (laughs) right? (laughs) Compared to just the average person in society. And like, like you said, I remember reading an article that struck me as just insane, but it was like 40 to 50% of people in the U S are one issue that costs them a thousand dollars away from being just flat broke. Like just yeah. one, one unexpected expense that's $1,000 can ruin these people. And I, how can it be? You know what's really funny? I used to be one of those people. But when I was one of those people, it was when I had them, the quote unquote, the American dream. I had this middle class job. At the time, I wasn't a sub. I was an actual math teacher. Um, I was buying a house. I was in a relationship with the girl who's um, who I'm helping out now, but all the things that you're supposed to want, I had, but all that stuff is expensive. So I had this job and making like a decent middle-class income, but you know, 90% of it was coming in, in one way and out the other. So you say a thousand, $500. Like I used to be so terrified of speeding tickets. Like I, I was at one point in my life where a speeding ticket would ruin me. <laughs> and now I look at it like, huh, I lost a buy-in. It feels like losing a tournament if I have to pay like a $200 speed and take it now. Back then when I had, when I was living the normal life and I had all the things that looked good, look good from the outside looking in, $500 unexpected expense would have meant maybe not paying my mortgage this month. And so, yeah, when you have less expenses, you have more freedom. And to me, freedom is happiness. So I don't understand the people who tie themselves down to so many 
material wants that are expensive and they basically become slaves to their job, the house and whatever else. And once I tasted freedom, I, I can never live without it again. It's a product of marketing. It's a product of just creating the narrative of, like you said, the American dream and what it yeah. is comprised of and people buy into it. And therein is the issue, right? Like the thing is marketing is very effective. Um, <laughs> yeah. Promoting and selling is very, very, very effective. And the majority of the time, people just don't get the value uh, of from the thing that they buy. Um, yeah. And honestly, that's probably the thing that breaks people. Like I've heard this so often from like famous people, rich people. It's like you work so hard to get to this point in life. And then after all that work, you get there and you realize you thought it was going to make you happy and it doesn't. And that maybe that what ha- maybe that's what happens to a lot of the people that are on the street in Vegas. It's like they just can't find the thing that makes them happy because they're looking externally as opposed to internally. And I've just always looked at internal happiness. How does it make you feel seeing these people struggle in this way or people get, getting caught in this trap? It's, it, make, oh, it makes me feel like I wish they knew what I knew. And I wish that the marketing that you mentioned was not as powerful. Now, you know, I'm pretty much in the same boat um, in other areas of my life, Um, like, for example, food, like the food marketing is like basically promoting slow suicide. And I know that and I still can't resist, you know, a lot of these things. So I, I have my vices the same way other people have vices with drugs or just keeping up with the Joneses. But I wish that, like I said earlier. I wish that they at least had a baseline where you can always have a roof over your head, even if that roof is a car and you don't have to pay rent on it. Just pay the gas and the insurance and that, you know, that sort of thing. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, like you said, we, we all have our vices and we're all susceptible to marketing. I went through a kick where I was trying to kick, knock out all of, all of the contributions to suffering in the world. And like, it was so hard. It was so yeah. hard not to buy stuff from China or not to buy clothes that are made in a Bangladesh factory where women are, are walking seven miles to work and from work and are working like 150 hours a week and then have, are, are basically fired at the age of 35 because they're no longer functional. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of suffering that just goes on in the world. And it, it's so hard to extract yourself from all of it because, you know, just as a society, it's like, yeah, we want to buy cheap shit from Walmart, but yeah. there's a price that's paid to keep these price, you know, these prices down. There, there's a toll that it took on a human somewhere in the world, and um, yeah, it, it, it's it's very it's very very tough because like food, I mean, this appeals to like our basic instincts, right? Like this is ground level human beings we love sugar and it's the most addictive <laughs> drug in the world yes and so it's it's a pretty easy sell just pumping something full of sugar and selling it yeah they got me <laughs> <laughs> they and you know i don't have kids and i don't ever want kids but 
part of the reason I said that I don't want kids is because I would be like a helicopter dad. I would probably be one of the worst dads ever because I would try to prevent all this stuff from happening to my kids' lives. And they hit me one day on Halloween. I was out and about in Vegas and it was Halloween and all these parents are walking around with their kids and like they're getting candy. And I'm thinking like, well, somebody's going to develop a sugar addiction tonight. And they're just doing it to their own kids. My mom did it to me and everybody does this to their kids. And it's like, if I had a kid, I wouldn't let them eat candy on Halloween. Cause I, I know what happened to me because I ate candy. And it was like, my kids would hate me like broccoli, <laughs> broccoli for Halloween or something. And uh, it's like, cause I try to like, there's things that if you asked me this when I was a kid, obviously I would have said, yeah, of course I want this candy. But if I can go back in time and kind of like not develop that sugar addiction in the beginning, my life would be a whole lot better right now. For sure. And I don't know that if you actually had kids, if you could do it, I would, yeah, I would I be, I'd be, I'd like to be a fly on the wall, you know, with your sugar, your sugar addiction personally, and they're watching you. And then you're like, no, we can't go out for Halloween. They'd be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You're kidding me right now. Right. Then I think about it. I do have a niece and I, I can recall buying her candy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be hard. Yeah. It is because they love it so much, but it, it's, um, yeah, it's just a problem with humanity. It's just a thing about humans. And let's go back to, to poker some. Okay. And this unwillingness to watch some somebody fail or be harmful on somebody's path, does that relate to your poker coaching career? Do you have any stories about that? Um, yes. Uh, I actually have a recent one. So I've been doing a lot of coaching lately. And I got a student recently that this was the newest person I ever met to poker, where like he came to me for poker coaching, but he didn't know what the word suck out meant. Like this is how new to poker he was. And I gave him the tools that he needed to succeed. And he was kind of resistant to a lot of this stuff. And he was losing. And but he is he says he was studying, but the play didn't seem to get much better from my point of view. And he it, it, it almost felt like he was confused why man, I've done two or three poker sessions with you and I haven't made a million dollars yet. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, dude, like I basically broke it down for him and then Recently, he um, came to me and complained about getting it in on the flop with the nut straight and some idiot just calling down with two pair. And then the guy beats him on the river. And he was like, I thought that you're supposed to win when that happens. And his words to me were, "Um, I'm not that into gambling. And I'm thinking like, like I thought, I thought, like, how can people do this for a living? I thought if you're good, you win. And if these people are just going to catch up and beat me all the time, then we're basically just gambling. And I don't know if I should continue. And I basically agree. I was like, yeah, you know what? 
if you're not happy getting in with 80% equity on the flop or 90% equity on the turn, if that's not, if that, I basically my exact words were, if that feels like gambling to you, it's because it is. It's gambling with an edge. And if you're looking for a money printing machine, this ain't it. No. Nope. And if you and if you can't get over that aspect of it, this game is probably going to ruin your life. So I basically more or less fired him as a, as a um, student, and he probably does not need to play poker because he strikes me as the guy that if he continues to play, and if he uh, continues to have this negative uh, attitude about it. I can kind of see him as one of these guys that, you know, ends up, you know, um, on the street, like losing everything because they just think, you know, eventually my luck is going to turn around and they're not really putting in the work to make the luck turn around. Yeah. And it's just fundamentally misunderstanding how the game works. I hope, I hope your student has some sort of job or backup plan because, that does not seem like a good situation. Yeah, he does. That that's the funny thing about it. I think he like works like on Wall Street or something. Like, okay. like he's supposed to understand investments. <laughs> and Risk. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm thinking like, okay, this is actually a pretty good guy to take from zero to a hundred in poker because he's already got the prerequisites. But I don't understand how you can be a trader and not understand that poker isn't a money printing machine. It it's funny I found that the impact that I have as a coach on students is almost always directly correlated with how much the student trusts me. Yeah, that's very true. And sometimes it's very hard to get someone to trust you if they just by nature are not a very trusting person. The part of it goes back to what you said about the marketing, especially with this guy, because he's a younger guy and all he's seen is like he hasn't really seen anybody go through the grind. I don't know how he found me because having found me should be a, you know, an example of somebody who's gone through the grind, but it felt like this guy, his, his idea of what a poker player is, is like the top 100 in the GPI where you're flying in and out of Macau and all this kind of stuff. He's expecting to do that within a year when a year ago he didn't know what the word suck out meant. So so I don't know where that was going to you know come from. I legitimately hope he didn't find you through this show because he will probably <laughs> not enjoy this episode. Yeah, I, I was thinking that too, but it's tough love, man. It was tough love. I, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't um, disrespectful, not too. I did get a little harsh, but, it, but t- from a tough love point of view, because it had been several months, and I just didn't see a whole lot of growth. And I kind of felt like, let me save you for your, from yourself. But the piece that you said about they get better results when they trust you, this is something I learned as a teacher, a math teacher. Maybe I mentioned this last time, but this is one of my favorite quotes. One of the things they told me early on in my teaching career is that students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I try to like, you know, express that to my kids when I was teaching and also to my um, poker students that I actually want them to succeed. I do a decent amount of like free work for them. 
just because I'm kind of invested in their success just as a human, more so than financially. And the ones that trust me the most definitely get um, better the fastest. And as a student myself, that was the same way with me. Good example. I don't know. I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but um, Andrew Brokus, good friend of mine, uh, past guest on the show here. Um, before I met him, he was just a voice on a training product that I was watching. I might be watching one of his training videos and he was kind of boring. And oftentimes he would put me to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to learn from this guy and is like, you know, he's just droning on and on about some mathematical because he because he's real theoretical when it comes to his teaching. Mm-hmm. And it's like like you don't hear like there's not any curse words. He's not that excited. It's like he's just doing his job, like, you know, methodical, like a college professor. And like I would probably sleep in his class if he was teaching me philosophy <laughs> or something. Um, but then I met him. And we became friends. And now when I watch his videos, it's not the professor talking, it's my friend talking. And I know he cares about me as a person, so I'm more interested in what he has to say. Yeah, that is that is a, a greatness bomb. You know, that's it, it's just so true that we pay attention to the people that become a part of our lives, that become trusted mentors or sources. I, I recently had, had a student and he came from live, like he's a live 510 player. Mm-hmm. And he thought, he asked me what stake he should play. He was very on the fence, right? So I gave him a deal. I said, look, if you want to try out coaching to reduce the risk for you, let's just do one session. If you don't like it, if you don't think it's valuable, we'll just cut our ties and we won't move forward. But if you do mm-hmm. like it, then, you know, I'm going to charge you for the session and we're just going to move forward with our relationship. And he said, okay. And so he showed up. I told him, you know, he asked me what stake he should play. I said, you should probably, you know, you're a 5'10 live cash game player. You seem to understand the game theoretically at a relatively high level. I would personally start at like 200 no limit on ignition. This was my, mm-hmm. my feedback because there's wells in those games. The games are beatable and, and good. And he was like, whoa, I, I thought you were going to say like 50 no limit. And because he, he's coming from this place of like online is very, it's much, much harder. Everybody's more fundamentally sound. The players are just dramatically better than live players. And I'm like, look, man, it, it's not really like that. Like you're still going to get whales. Like there's, they're still going to, they're, they're going to show up. Right. Um, yeah. So we do our session and the way that I do my sessions are I make him record a video and then narrate over it with his thought process. Mm. And then I watch it back and I make notes and then we, we review the video for the session. And there were two spots specifically. The first spot, the board ran out four to a flush and four to a straight. And he, uh, his opponent donk bet like half pot on the river and he folded and i'm like i don't like that like i like a call or i like a raise I, the board was like uh three five six seven eight and then the river was the ace of clubs putting up the fourth fourth club and um i'm like yeah i don't like this fold i would rather call a raise 
And he's like, mm, seems dicey. Like still like not there on the trust level, right? Right. And then the other hand, he had queens and he like opens versus a limp. Small blind calls, big blind calls, limper calls. The flop's jack, jack, tray. Check, check, check. He bets out like half pot with his queens. Small blind pretty quickly check raises him like three and a half X. So pretty big. Right. And I'm listening to his narration and he's like, I would just be shocked if my opponent ever shows up with less than a jack here. This is super gross spot. Uh, I think I'm just going to fold. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, cool. This is this is a spot that we can talk about. So we talk about it, and I'm like, so from my perspective here, I expect our opponent to show up with a lot more air than you're thinking, because number one, it was a very quick check raise. It typically, if somebody has trips or a boat there, they're going to at least think about whether they should call and then raise the turn, whether they should raise here. There's going to be some sort of thought, right? So it's like a little timing tell indicator. And I give him that feedback. He's still like, you know, on the fence, but ignition, the genius of ignition <laughs> is you can see yes. the hands 24 hours later. Right. So yes. like he can see what he, what they have. And I'm like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they just show something super weird, like seven, eight offsuit here, like just something you, you would never expect in a million years. And he downloads the hands. And then I get a message on Twitter, like, 24 hours later. And he's like, Holy shit. The dude had five, six off. Like, and the other dude was bluffing on the four to a straight four to a flush. Like, yeah, I'm going to buy a coaching pack and I want to move forward. And that to me was like, it was a really good moment as a coach because it was like, thank God that dude didn't just have trips and I look like an idiot, (laughs) (laughs) but obviously like maybe this is a part of their range and they do have it sometimes, but like, what it did was it allowed him to trust me. And ever since that moment, that first session, he was very tentative on the fence about my feedback. Ever since then, it's like he just buys into the things that I say and he will try my suggestions and and he believes in me, you know? And that is just such a powerful force when it comes to making an impact on a player. Like if he just would have been tentative and skeptical about what I was telling him or instructing him would have made nowhere near the impact that, that it has. And, you know, I get it. Some people are full of it. Like some people are full of shit. Some coaches don't care and they look at it, you know, they're just taking the money and they don't want to invest the time or energy. But, um, I've always just been the person that like, we're invested in these people's lives like right. they're trusting us, giving us money. It, we we should do everything in our power to help them avoid suffering if we can. Yeah, especially with my teaching background. It's like I'm really, I'm always like, like I came up through education under this, like the grading system for me as a teacher was my student success. So it wasn't like, I'm just going to take your money. I'm not really going to help you get better. And I'm going to be happy with that because in my old job, if I didn't help you succeed, then I was a failure. And the same thing kind of applies to um, coaching poker. I feel like I'm a better coach, a better coach when I can point to specific students whose games I've changed for the better. And two things that really helps getting that buy-in on the, um, trust issue is like you said playing on ignition ignition where you can see 
you know, the whole cards 24 hours after you finish your session. And also, if you can prove your your advice mathematically, that cannot be denied. Yep. I can open up Flopzilla and I can show you mathematically why my suggestion, my suggestion to you is valid. That gets people to buy in a lot quicker than just saying, yeah, trust me. Yep. Yeah. The the data, the data doesn't lie. Exactly. Well, it can lie depending on how you <laughs> right. frame it. <laughs> but right. um, what I do is, you know, if I'm fine, like I, I'm cool, man, with people challenging me, like challenge, challenge yeah. my advice that I'm giving you, challenge it, go to your database and let's find these spots. If you think I'm, I'm dramatically wrong, prove it. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and if I think I'm right, I'm going to try to prove it to you. And in a worst case scenario, I'm wrong. And I learned something <laughs> as a coach, right? Like, but there's no poker. Poker is not full of certainty. There's so much right. uncertainty behind all of the decisions that like, if we're going to challenge something, let's go to the tape. Let's go to previous his, history. Let's go to the, the big data and see um, who's right and who's wrong here. Like, instead of just, you know, arguing, arguing theoretically, because like yeah. that, that's something that will just never get resolved if we're just arguing theory back and forth because we can't prove it. Yeah, this actually happened to me on more than one occasion where a student gave me a hand history and going through it, he did something that wasn't good in my opinion. So I told him not to do that again. And uh, I generally ask them before I just say, don't do something. I'll say, are you surprised to see yourself do this? And sometimes it's like, you know, they just made a mistake and they're like shocked to see that they did this. But the guy was like, no, I do this all the time. And I was like, okay, tell me what you're thinking about here. And when he explained it, I was like, oh shit, that's kind of genius. <laughs> <laughs> and then I took it to Flopzilla and I ran it through and I'm thinking like, oh, this checks out mathematically. And now I do it as well. And I teach, you know, everybody else to do it. So there was something that started off as it was a mistake because the GTO poker books said, don't do this. Mm -hmm. But we're playing in a different environment than those books are written for. Ignition is like the wild, wild west, man, when it comes to poker. So not everything is going to, I guess, small stakes in general. Um, the stuff that you learn from books doesn't always uh, apply. And so this guy was doing something highly exploitative outside of GTO to take advantage of mistakes that the player field was making. And it was just something I hadn't seen before because I, because I didn't learn it in a book, I thought it was a mistake until he was able to explain it to me. And then um, the program Flopzilla proved it to me mathematically. And that's when it became a part of my game. So I definitely learned a decent amount as a coach um, from my students, um, quote unquote, mistakes. It's hard, man. Like, I think the GTO solvers, while doing good and bringing clarity as far as baseline decisions in some spots, have really done damage to a lot of players' games when it comes to creating this illusion of certainty on what you should be taking at different parts in the decision tree when playing against 
a GTO solver versus a human being because human right. beings fundamentally are different than the <laughs> GTO solver. Like we're emotional creatures. We fall into obvious patterns and to ignore that has always struck me as just like silly to just ignore the human element of this game and say like, Oh, I'm going to do this because of the solver told me to. It's like, man, this is like where the edge has always come from. Like we're playing against human beings. That's, that's where we find the exploitative strategies. And that, that to me, it, it makes me a little sad when, when I hear these stories of like, like Nick Howard's one person who like, really bought into the dogmatic belief of solvers that they were giving him a solution to give him clarity. And Mm -hmm. then he just got smashed for like years and finally just hit a brick wall and hit rock bottom. And basically he said he'd never prayed to God before ever or any God. And he did that night when he was like, just show me a better way. Like, why is this happening to me? You know? Yeah. And a lot of people are not as smart as Nick Howard. <laughs> to, they're, they're, a lot of people are not going to be self-aware enough to reflect and say, this is what's happening right now. There's got to be a better way, right? And for those people, I really, I really feel for them because it, it, it's hard. Yeah, especially if you're like Nick Howard and you're playing in some of the tougher games around. I'm one in that I know I got a lot of leaks and mistakes in my game, but a lot of that stuff is masked by the fact that I'm playing with people who aren't even trying to win. Yeah. So, so if you're, if, if you struggle um, to apply GTO um, thought process, or if you try to stray from that and you're not really having success in your games, you should probably play on ignition because (laughs) They're literally giving money away on this site. I've always said, like, it doesn't matter if I'm playing a pot against a whale and the cocktail waitress knows what I have and the cocktail waitress knows to fold. (laughs) If everybody in the universe, except for this one player, knows that I have it 100% of the time, then it does not matter, right? Yes, yes. What only matters is what this player that I'm playing against knows and how they're going to use that against me. And like, if you can get it all, then get it all against yeah. a specific player. It doesn't matter if it's exploitable because the, the way that something is exploitable is if your competition realizes it and is able to counter it and exploit you, right? And if they're not able to, then just pull the trigger and take the exploitable strategy. Yeah, I was doing a session yesterday and a guy made a comment where I suggested, you know, a play that was a little bit out of line and the hand went to showdown. And then he said, so you're going to tighten up going forward, right? Because, like, you know, everybody saw that. And I told him, first of all, everybody didn't see that. (laughs) This hand, it was a nine-handed table. The hand started five-handed. By the time we got down to the river, there were only two people left in the pot. Those people may have seen it. The other people missed it. <laughs> and you need two things to happen. First, they need to see what happened and then do something about it. Yep. And most people don't make it to the first step and very few make it to the second step. And what I told him, like this is an online hand, so I didn't really know who I was playing against. But 
the phrase, like the uh, analogy I use for him is that for this guy to exploit this, he has to be old man coffee who sees my hand and then decides to become an internet kid. Yep. He can't completely change his personality personality just because he saw me show down one hand that was outside of the GTO charts. He's probably going to like curse me in his head and say, what is this idiot doing? And then that's going to be the extent of it. Yep. You got to make people, you got to make people exploit you before you accept that they are exploiting you. Like they got to prove it. You know, like you said, tigers don't change their stripes. Most, (laughs) most players, most players operate in a paradigm of themselves. It's a bubble of what am I going to do? What action am I going to take? Like, what should I do here? It's all about I, I, I. Right. Very few players are paying attention to you, to the other players that they're playing against and developing specific strategies to exploit those specific players. It, I don't know the percentage, but it's got to be sub 1% of the players that you play against online. If you're playing anything less than, you know, I don't know about tournaments, but cash game, anything less than like 100, no limit, especially like full ring. They're just not paying attention. They don't care. They're not trying to exploit you. They're just worried about themselves and their own strategy. And the ones that are won't be in your games for much longer. Yeah, they're gone. They move up. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So that's the way to look at it. Like those people are playing that buy-in level for a reason. Yep, they got bigger fish to fry. Right. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, you'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. You had a you had a recent upswing about a month ago. We had coming into this show for the listener. If you're wondering, we had four talking points, and I think we hit one of them. <laughs> we we talked for an hour and hit one talking point, and I was actually anxious about running out of things to say for yeah. this episode for this round two. 
But um, you had a recent recent down upswing followed by a downswing. Could you just tell me about that? Yes, actually, now that I think about it, there were two. This kind of um, I mentioned earlier about COVID. The one thing I learned was to stay out of populated areas. The other thing I learned is that pandemics usually have a second wave. And what's really funny is that this, my bankroll kind of looks like, like, like my graph of my results kind of looked like a pandemic. It, it shot up in February. And then, so I'll just go back to that because I got my results here on screen. So I play online tournaments. Um, and in February, I had a 17K score. And obviously that was great. And the rest of February, I kind of took most of the month off looking at it here. But a few min caches, not much else. And then COVID hit. And so one thing that happened gradually is all the live guys started to get online. And so the, the, the sizes of the tournament started to like slowly swell. And I didn't realize it. So bigger field tournaments come with bigger variants. It's harder to make the final table in a 1,000-player field than in a 300-player field. So the tournaments that I used to play, the field sizes were tripling, and I almost didn't notice it because it happened gradually. So March, I went on like a 7K downswing. And I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on. And then by the end of March is when I realized it. I want to say that was around the time when you and I first spoke. and. So I actually moved to a different site with smaller player, um, with smaller fields and also dropped down in stakes because I was supposed to go back and work to work in March and that didn't happen. So I needed to like lower my variance even further. So I dropped down in stakes, um, found, a, found a site with smaller um, field sizes and my results started to turn around. So they kind of slowly crept back up throughout April and May, and then in June, uh, my first site, Ignition, the, for whatever reason, and I still don't know why this happened, but the field sizes exploded in March, and then they just kind of like went back to where they were before. So I don't know what the live guys are doing now if they're not playing online, because they're still not playing live, not at least to the the volume they were before. So Probably not a getting people, a job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So maybe a lot of people just stopped playing poker or something. I don't know. But um, in June, when I went back to Ignition, I immediately hit a 5K score on the 26th. And this was a tournament. This was a 25K knockout. Uh, One of my students won it. And I got jealous, so I won it two days later. Way to go. (laughs) Yeah. And... um, Maybe a week after that, I got fourth in a 250K for 13K. Ayo. And a week after that, I won the, one, the, the 25K knockout again for another 5K. And so I went on like, you know, this 20K heater. And that was the last time I had a significant cash, which was July 18th. Since that time... I've played 50 tournaments because I can't get in a lot of volume now because I'm coaching so much. Seven caches and I'm down 7K again. So it's not a it's not a large sample size of tournaments, 
but it's a long time because of my lack of volume. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. In my mind, I feel like, geez, I haven't, I haven't made a final table since July 18th, but 49 tournaments normally is like three days for me. Right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, here taking care of my ex, um, spending most of my time coaching. So now I'm only playing on Sundays and I may only get a chance to play five tournaments on a Sunday where I used to play like 10 tournaments every day or something. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I think the last final table that I made was like eight or nine years ago. So Yeah, you don't play tournaments. <laughs> I think I've played four tournaments uh, in the last eight or nine years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, like you, you spend your time doing other things and 50 tournaments, it's a life of the MTT grinder. Like 50 tournaments is is nothing, right? Right. And I was actually talking to my ex about this earlier today because she never knew any of this stuff. Like I don't bring this poker stuff into conversations with people who don't play poker because they just can't understand. Sure. Like if I told her that I was, that I won 20,000, she was like, why didn't you just quit when you won the money? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Just <laughs> cash so, out never play. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's like, I win 20 K and my life doesn't change. I lose seven K. My life doesn't change. That's because my baseline is low. I'm not depending on winning money at poker or even getting coaching clients. I'm not depending on that money to pay my bills because I don't have bills. Right. So yeah, it's a pretty good place to be. It's something that Mike Caro said many years ago. I remember reading it in a book. I believe it's like fundamental secrets of winning poker players. And it, basically he just made the point that poker player cashes for like a hundred K renovates his bathroom <laughs> for 20 K buys a new car for 30 K like spends 20 K on something else and then loses 30 K playing poker. Now he's broke and feels like a failure. And like he's net positive 70 K in poker but he's just spent all the rest of it in life, right? There, There's more than one way to go broke as a poker player. And one surefire way is to keep your life expenses so high that you just have to, the pressure is on every single month to make a certain amount of money. And when you don't, it's like, it's like we said earlier, it's catastrophe. And yeah. then you go broke and then every, your life starts unraveling and falling apart. And that's that's just a major, major pitfall for poker players who use money as their tool to make more money. Yeah. I actually remember that article. Like I, I read that exact same article where I want to say part of his point was even though you're broke now, you're not a failure because you just paid all your expenses for an entire year without working. Yeah. Like that has to count for something, but you quickly forget about that once you're out of action. Oh, for that's sure. What, that's what makes you feel like a failure. I, another thing too, I think he equated it to like the printing press. It's like you're a yep. printer <laughs> and you get you you have a $20,000 expense. So you just sell your printing machine <laughs> to, to pay for the expense. Like, how does this make sense, right? Like you, you may have covered it, but now you have no way to make money moving forward, right? It's so funny that you brought up that article because I refer to it all the time. In fact, I didn't say this, but I almost said it when I mentioned about, you know, telling my ex that I won 20K and she would say, why, why wouldn't you just quit? I looked at 
I, I, I would have used that example with her. It's like money is the tool that I'm using to make more money. So I'm not going to take that money out of, you know, production and put it into the bank because now, you know, my business is closed. So the printing press example is an example I refer to often. <laughs> Mike Carroll. He's got some great articles, man. He's kind of underrated as a poker writer. I think so too. I don't know what's happened to my, I mean, I guess he's old. Like he's, he mm-hmm. has to be really, really old right now, but he was massively influential early on in my career when there wasn't much content and the great stuff was a lot of it was Mike Caro. Like I always knew him as the tails guy, mm-hmm. but his strategy stuff is underrated. Yeah. It's great. To this day, uh, I think his website is like poker one.com or something like that. And that's where a lot of his articles, I'll kind of get them. I run a co- I run across them occasionally. Whenever I read one, I get something out of it. And he, he reminds me a bit of uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, Tommy Angelo, who is kind of succinct and they put things in a simple way that anybody can grasp. Yeah. So yeah Mike, Mike's Car- Mike Carroll's the man. Yeah. They're, they're teachers, you know, they're just yes. natural, natural teachers. And speaking, speaking of teaching, I think we're going to close. I'm going to exhort you to raise your fee. Raise your coaching price, man. Because I know, look, I know exactly what you go through. And $50 a session is not $50 an hour. It is off the tables. It is emails. It is instant messages. It is phone conversations, putting out fires and answering questions. Like it is such a labor intensive gig that like I charge 150 a session and I feel underpaid a lot of the time for just yeah. the amount of energy and effort that goes into that I feel is acceptable, right? Because I'm not going to just leave right. my guy hanging. If he's struggling or has a question, I'm going to invest myself fully into these guys, which is why I never have a ton of students because I just don't have enough time to invest into every single human. Like if I had God, I can't even imagine having like 20 students. I would never get anything done. But um, yeah. yeah, raise your rates, man. You got to. You, you also have such a massive edge over me. I had to, I, I was a poker player who had to learn how to teach. You're a teacher. <laughs> you already yeah. know these things. Yeah, you, you, you really just said something now that just made a light bulb go off in my head. Because we used to get this argument all the time as teachers because people would say you have some people that really understand that would say, Oh, teachers are underpaid. And then you have the other side that would say, Oh, they only work during the week and they get the summers off and they continue to get paid. And it's like, if you look at my hourly rate as a teacher, as the amount of time I'm putting in, in the classroom, it is decent. But when you actually think about the amount of work I do outside of the classroom, it's damn near minimum wage. Yep. And and my current poker rate is also like that. Like that $50 an hour rate, I'm probably actually making maybe $15, $20 an hour when I think about all the work I'm putting in off the table. Yep. So you're, you're right about that. I, I never thought about relating it or comparing it to my hourly rate as a teacher when all the work I was doing outside of class, like grading papers all day on the weekend and 
your summers a lot of times are workshops like you're getting ready for the next year for a good portion of it so yeah yeah i gotta i gotta think about it in those terms yeah the people i think the people that say that about teachers are not teachers <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've never experienced teaching and everything that goes into it so they don't have the experience to really have an educated opinion on on the issue yeah and i can point to the majority of my students um, they they constantly send me screenshots of tournaments they won. So I know they're immediately getting an ROI that justifies uh, the rate I'm charging. Um, like they've already gotten their money back, a lot of them. And I've taught them something that they can continue to use over and over again for the rest of their lives. So yep. the ROI, if you're a potential student out there, just understand that once you learn something, the ROI is almost limitless. Because guess what? I'm making money as a player using stuff I learned when I was paying for coaching, and I still pay for coaching. And not only am I making that money as a player, I'm also teaching a lot of those same things to my students. So I've actually, you know, because I, because I was once a poker, because I once paid for coaching, I gained the skills that have now given me a coaching business. Dude, like what, what, what gig do people go after? Like my wife was in school for nine months and we paid $20,000 to, for her to go to school to become an esthetician. And she started her own business. That's doing very well right now. But the majority of the people that she graduated with go to massage envy and make $10 an hour. They spent yeah. 20K to make 10 bucks an hour. Like what other profession can you get into and be successful without investing into your education? Like if you really think about it, it's like, okay, somebody does whatever, 20 sessions with me. That's like, that's like 3K, which yeah. is still very, very, very small when you look at it in the context of like a college course or education learning some other type of endeavor. It's, it's just so, so small. And then in your case, it's like 20 sessions is a, a grand, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that's nothing uh, when you compare it. Um, yeah. It's just, I think people have a weird, feel weird about investing into their poker education specifically. Like, you know, maybe the coach is going to take advantage of them or something. I'm, I'm not really sure what it is, but like, I, I feel like people ought to look at it in a different way than they do. Right, right. But um, I agree with that, Carlos. It's been great having you. I, you're gonna come on for round three. Let's do it. Whenever you launch that mysterious thing <laughs> with the mysterious person. <laughs> yes, my rate will not be fifty dollars when I do that. So get it while it's hot. <laughs> yes, and and charge an appropriate amount for whatever it is that you're releasing as well. I, yes. I want to to emphasize that as well. Here's how sad it can be, man. Today. I, I ran a, a pre-flop range boot camp, right? It's like 63 mm -hmm. ranges, five days, a group of us crammed. Like I was in there quizzing people every single day. Like, like a dummy, I said, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna charge a hundred bucks for this. It was so much work, like an insane <laughs> amount of work over five days. Like everything in my production line fell, fell to pieces, right? Right. One of my dudes... I coach him regularly as well. We had a session and he said, man, this boot camp 
is the most I've studied poker for 800 hours this last year. This boot camp has been the most impactful thing that I have done. It's made me feel like I've studied all of the wrong things. I'm going to give you an extra hundred bucks. I feel bad <laughs> for how little I paid you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, man, I, I missed the price point there. I think with, uh, yeah. <laughs> with the value, but yeah, that's um, happened to me like twice. Yeah. yeah, yeah like, that, it was so weird when it happened too. Yeah, but it, I it's appreciated like, uh, it. Yeah, me too. I'm, yeah. I'm grateful, and it's like, okay, I, I guess I really need to. <laughs> I really need to start charging what I'm worth here instead of just charging what I think people can afford. You know? Right, right, right. But take care, man. Be safe out there. Hopefully, you can get on the road soon. Yes. Avoiding those weirdos in the world. <laughs> Definitely. Let's chat again. Okay, Brad. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.